You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and uh, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey, good afternoon. Good day. Who's on the show? You got Ira Glass. Ira Glass is on oh, the show. You yes. got Ira Glass to come on the show? <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> we got Ira Glass to come on did the you, show. Did you lie to him? Um, <laughs> well, I think part of it was he wrote the foreword of this book uh, called Out on the Wire, and it's like a comic book about making radio stories. And so I think part of the reason he came on was because he like wanted to help push that book. So I'm really glad that I'm now saying that book. Uh, it's by Jessica Abel. You should get it in the show notes. And uh, But yeah, he was willing to come on. Wow. And uh, it was great. I got to spend a lot of time with him. I interviewed him at This American Life, like in their studio. It was a very much an away game. Uh, it's, it's an interesting time to be Ira Glass. He's got uh, he has many descendants uh, on the airwaves today, and is still doing what he does and has been doing for quite a while. So. Yeah, we talked a lot about like kind of the podcast boom and how he sees his role in that. Yeah, mm-hmm. influences are everywhere. Yeah, it's true. All right, what about sponsors? Uh, we got a couple. The first one is, uh, Aaron, you'll be happy about this one. I am already happy about this one. It's uh, EA Sports, <laughs> FIFA 2016. The new game is out right now. Wait, uh, now tell me, is it true that you can play as the women's national team in this game? That is true, yes. That is the uh, that is one of the many new cool things about it. Probably the best one. That wasn't, that wasn't a rhetorical device. I actually, this is the first time hearing about this. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. You can play with the women's national team. It's awesome. I plan on uh, besting you with them and uh, all the other teams in the game. Wow. That is, is just how this has gone that's, historically. Your sportsmanship is at an all, all-time <laughs> high. That, thank you, Max. And thank you, EA FIFA. Our second sponsor is, of course, MailChimp. Um, wait, wait, wait. Before we get to MailChimp. There is one more. Do we have any? Do we have any games here at the office? Yes, in fact, we do. <laughs> uh, EA Sports uh, uh, very generously has given us ten games to give away to listeners, and we uh, we thought for a while about what the most kind of like uh, elaborate, complicated process was, and we decided that just send us an email. Best pr- best prank on Evan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, best best listener prank on Evan. <laughs> just send an email to uh, podcast at longform org. Or prank Evan. <laughs> Aaron, we're, we're, we're 10 seconds away from you just giving out my home address <laughs> on this podcast. It'll be in the show notes. 
Um, okay, so get yourself after you get yourself a uh, a FIFA uh, game. Uh, you you're playing it all the time. Um, maybe you need to start a newsletter. I don't know exactly how those two things would tie into each other, but a newsletter about your passion for the EA FIFA game. Where would you do that? Of course, with Mailchimp. Uh, my newsletter for long form that Max and I run is on there. Uh, Evan runs the Out of Us newsletter on there. Actually, millions and millions of people have uh, Mailchimp newsletters. Eight and million. Eight million. Eight, eight million. I'd, I was going to say millions and millions eight times, but I, I <laughs> edited that for clarity. Um, the greatest part is as you build towards a list that has millions of people on it, the first 2,000 are actually free. So you can start a mailing list right now for no cost at all. It's the best mailing list service in the game. Thank you, MailChimp. All right, now here's Max with Ira Glass. Ira Glass, thank you for doing this. Glad to do it. We're, uh, we are here in your studio, and you are sitting where you normally sit in your studio. And yes. I'm, I'm sitting in the guest chair, and uh, if nothing else, this will be the best sounding episode we've ever done. Because normally, where is it recorded? Uh, it's recorded in like a, uh, somewhere between a room and a closet in our office in Dumbo, and it's fine. It works, but like uh, it's not. It's not quite like this. Oh, okay. This it, isn't a very glamorous studio. This is just like a prefab thing that we bought. Your office is uh, nondescript. What do you mean it's nondescript? Really? Not the inside. The outside is what I meant. Oh, the you outside, mean like it, there's like uh, construction going on in the hallway. There's like Art Vandalay Industries across the way. Yeah, this is the most generic company I've ever heard of. I can't even remember the name. And yeah, I saw it thirty yeah. seconds ago. And you yeah, just there's have a tailor thing. down the hall. We have just like a little kind of a business card on the door. Yeah, yeah. You just have this like little business card that's also falling off. I remember when Mike Birbiglia, one of our contributors, visited the office for the first time. He's like, "Oh, don't let ever let anybody come here." <laughs> he's like, "This is too disappointing." He's like, "He's like, he's like, because to hear you guys on the radio, I picture like you know you have like a whole building or something, or like you know you're like floors of some yeah. office building." He's like, "Oh, it's just like it's like ten little you know." cubicles and then a, a prefab studio it's it, it just seemed so cheap to him he's yeah. just like this is really don't let anybody ever see this <laughs> i wouldn't say cheap it's just like uh yeah i don't know nondescript and it's also kind of small like i just uh used the bathroom very small uh tiny bathroom yeah yeah small so, tiny bathroom in the uh with notes above the uh toilet from like the original names for the show yeah yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a my notes from the day that we named the show yeah uh, in a meeting, and then uh, and then you, this American Life isn't even like is sort of handwritten as something we came to as a compromise candidate. Do you think if it had been named American Whatever, it would have uh, worked out as well? I do because I think American Whatever is a better name. And uh, do you have you kind of wish it was American Whatever? I don't think I wish that it was American Whatever, but I still believe that it's a better name. But but I couldn't talk anybody into that, and um, and so that's so we ended up with this American Life. This American Life is better than uh, another one on there is like Glassworks. I didn't want anything with my name in it, actually. Glassworks wouldn't have been great. No. Why not just Glasshole? We're going to go that route. <laughs> um, no, like American Whatever it actually accurately sort of describes the show better than This American Life. I don't know. Everybody felt it was, it was too close. It's a close lot to, less definitive. It's a lot less definitive and it's a lot less pretentious. Um, but but almost in its it's almost its unpretentiousness is almost a humble brag. 
Yes. Um, and so, so maybe that's a problem. And then it was very like you know it was twenty years ago that we named the show, so it's like it was it was very close to the movie Clueless, and so whatever very much like brought up like Alicia <laughs> Silverstone, you know, like like it was a pro- like it was like that was an issue for the staff. I don't know, like like I generally have discovered that if I'm the only person on staff who likes an idea, it's time to drop it. Is it hard to do that as the boss? It's just hard to do that as a person. Yeah, like yeah, because there's a part of me which is just like. Like like a lot of people, like I make my living on my taste, you know what I mean? And so like, and so to feel like, well, no, I'm pretty sure about this, to have like an entire room full of people say like, just strongly, strongly disagree. It isn't because I'm the boss, it's because, because I feel like, well, then what, what, like, where, you know, like the compass that's kind of guiding me through the rocky ocean, like is, is a, is a fault. Like that's, that's, that's hard for anybody. But it's a little, sure, but it's a little different when they've all, they're all like people you've hired, Right. Yeah, but like at this point, like we've all been together for so many years. Like some of us, like you know, like 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 some of the staff, like Nancy's, you know, was on this show when it began, and Julie right. almost, and you know, like lots of people, like eight, ten years and more. And so it's more like we're like a band that's been on the road for a really, really long time, you know, and a lot of stressful weeks and figuring things out and and so it's more it's more peers than that when it comes to actually like deciding stuff. And plus, you've sort of made your peace with whatever dynamic that might be right like oh my god i mean in a certain way like like there are things i mean in the story meeting this week you know there are just things where like people said stuff that i just you know i just don't agree with but i lost you know what i mean <laughs> like i just and i just feel like well it, i don't know like at some point you have to decide which kind of boss you're going to be and do yeah. you need to get your way or do you need or do you need like to to come to something that kind of makes sense to everybody in you and like to me included you know like I feel like the stuff that we decided I feel good about but like you know you know left on my own I wouldn't have chosen some of the things we chose when did you feel like you got like comfortable as a boss have have you been comfortable as a boss for a while no no I was bad as a boss I think if you were to talk to the producers who have been here for a long time I was a really bad boss I think at the beginning because I was still like I wasn't used I like I hadn't got my mind around like that it would be different than just being a reporter you know like it's different being in charge than being an employee and 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 so and so like I don't know I, I just I just felt like well no it's obvious how you do this like and it just did, like how you write this piece or how you do this thing or that thing and it just I wasn't very nice I think I just didn't think about other people and their needs at all I didn't I like I feel like it was exactly good enough to like get the show going and and uh, and get it running but I don't think I was super sensitive and now I feel like like I'm not fantastic but I feel like I understand. I understand what I'm supposed to do, and I feel like I'm good. I'm good enough at it that I think people like working here, and like you, people stay for a long time. So I feel like okay, I'm, I'm not. I'm not horrible. And and like, then part of being a boss, like the part of like organizing the show and raising the money and running things, that part I kind of like. Uh-huh. Like I enjoy the business side of it, which which I never get a chance to talk about. But like I, you know, like you know, the radio show is a business, and and I've run the business for 20 years. And, and you know, and I feel like it. it's one thing to have kind of an idealistic idea about, like, the show you want to make, but it's another to actually, like, talk radio stations into running it and making it appealing for radio stations and making them want to carry it and carry it at good times and, and just proving yourself in a way that, that it works as a business. Well, that's also just, like, sales. Yeah, there's a lot of sales. And I, and I don't feel shy about sales. Like, that's why I don't mind the pledge drive. Yeah. Most jobs at some point you have to sell yourself to somebody. 
I just decided I was going to be comfortable with that. Like I, I, cause I, I, you know, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I feel like I'm going to have to get good at that too. If I want to be able to make the work I want to make. And in a way, like, like it's funny because now this American life, it seems like such a standard thing on public radio. But when we started, it was such a weird show that like, like really stations didn't know how to take it. And I sounded very different than everybody else was hosting a public radio show. It was much more casual performance than was happening on the air on public radio in 1995. And I had been a reporter on the daily news shows and a producer before that for a long time. Like, like when I started the show, I'd been working in public radio for 17 years. Like I'm old now, you know, I'm really (laughs) old. Like, um, but people but, who can't tell sitting at home, you're, you're old. I'm old, right. So I've been on the air for a while. And, and program directors, you have to talk your way onto each station one by one in public radio because it's like a radically decentralized Still? system. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, I, and it's really, in a way, it's one of the great strengths of the, of, the, of the public radio system is that anybody at any station or an independent producer can just create a show and then just start calling around and talking stations and picking them up. You know, and, you know, so the, how did you do that? How I did that is, you know, we hired a person half time and, and she, she, you know, she would send out cassette tapes. If you picked up the show, we would send you a Snickers bar. <laughs> and then the thing that got us on stations actually was something that like at first we didn't realize was going to happen. And, and I was like, well, one thing that we know about the stations, the one thing they really, really want is they have trouble with the pledge drive and they just need material for the pledge drive. They're always desperate for decent material. And uh, and so we just did killer pledge modules that would make them a ton of money. And like literally like and, and just because they were funny and we would be like, you know, three minutes long, four minutes long. And we also knew it like they're not putting our show at a time that anybody listens to the radio. We're on like late Saturday afternoon or Sunday night. You know, like nobody's listening to the radio. These modules, they could run during drive time. And we thought like it's got service a couple of purposes. One is in the modules. I say I'm Ira Glass, host of this new show, This American Life. So then people hear there's a new show. Right. Here's the host. Here's what he sounds like. <laughs> and then it's like, let's make the modules sound like the show. And yeah. and but it, it had the unexpected effect that we learned like like people really wanted the pledge modules. And, and in fact, Andrea, who was like answering the phone, the one sending out cassettes, she's like, all these people want the pledge modules. And I was like, well, have they picked up the show? She's like, no, 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 they haven't picked up the show. She's like, well, tell them they can get the pledge modules, but they have to pick up the show. <laughs> and in our first year, half of the stations that picked us up told us straight out, we want the pledge modules. We have to take the show. Okay, we'll take the show too. <laughs> and and if you look around the office, like on the wall, there's some of the postcards that we used to send out to stations. And one of them is just like, like don't do it because it's the right thing to do. Don't do it because we're the show that's trying to reinvent public radio. Don't do it because we're making this amazing show. Do it because we will make you money. We are fierce <laughs> capitalist competitors who will make you money. That is what we're going to do for your radio station. Don't do it because it's the right thing to do. And that became our sales pitch. And in the first year we got on... 112 stations. And then PRI picked us up as our distributor because NPRI, where I had worked since I was a teenager, did not want us at all. And PRI was very enthusiastic. And PRI, in a, doing, by doing a couple of genius marketing moves, doubled it in three months. Wow. And so then, then like a year and a half in, we were like, you know, on 200 stations. That must have been crazy. Just felt safe. You know what I mean? Like I don't know how else to say it. Like like it suddenly it felt like okay, we get to keep our jobs. Like things are going to be okay. Like for the first few years, we were just all working kind of every waking minute right. and weekends because the staff was so small. It really was just four of us for four years, five years. We were as successful as any of us imagined could possibly happen. 
I mean, it's interesting, like watching Serial happen. You know, we started this podcast last fall. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard of it. That's the most popular podcast in the form ever made, and and in a way, it was a very similar process where Sarah and Sarah Koenig and, and Julie Snyder, who created it, you know, were producers on the staff. Julie was our senior producer, and 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 they're just like, we have this thing we want to try that we think could work, but we don't know. And the idea is like, you know, Sarah had this story that she didn't, that she thought she wanted to report about Adnan. And Julie kind of had the idea of like, could you tell one story over eight or 10 or 12 episodes and have people keep, keep listening? And, 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 and part of it was a question about like, could we do what HBO does and what Netflix does? Like, can you create a world where there's a bunch of characters at the beginning and you get people hooked on the, characters and the situation in the world of it and then keep them listening if it's nonfiction. Like, mm-hmm. can you do that with journalism? And um, and 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 really, like, they viewed it as, like, this little experiment and who knows if this is going to work. And really, like, our business expectations were really low. Like, if we knew if we could, if we could get 300,000 people to download it, then... In total could, or per episode? Per episode, then it could pay for itself. And, you know, and then, like... They got to f- a million people downloading per episode in four weeks. Right. And it made me go back and look at how long did it take the radio show to do that using the old technology, the pre-digital technology of we have to talk radio stations into picking us up. And then we have to get popular enough that they put us on at a decent time. And it took the radio show, it took This American Life, to reach the same audience of a million people per episode. It took us four years. Yeah. We were in there for four years before we got that. And it took them four weeks. Hey, I'm going to put things on uh, hold for just a second and tell you a little bit about our sponsors this week. First up is Frontline, the PBS show Frontline. If you are listening to our podcast, I can't imagine that you're not familiar with Frontline. But what you might not know is that the new season starts this Tuesday, September 29th, and they're opening the season with a three-part serial uh, that's really pretty incredible. It's made by filmmaker Ken Dornstein and Ken's brother, uh, died on Pan Am Flight 103 in 1988. And and what this three-part series does basically is Ken searching for answers, trying to figure out what happened uh, to his brother. He goes deep into case files. He gets a whole list of uh, suspected plotters. Uh, he spent five years tracking them, and uh, this three-part serial is the result of those five years. It airs Tuesday, 10-9 Central on PBS. It's called My Brother's Bomber. Uh, I recommend it. And we'll have uh, a link to some previews in the show notes, so check that out. Also sponsoring the show this week is a company called Fracture, and uh, here's what Fracture does. Fracture prints your photos in vivid color directly on glass, so not on paper, but glass. It's uh, been described as HDTV for your photos, and if you, uh, like me, well, here's here's the story. I have a uh, small, uh, pudgy, very cute child and a slightly larger, pudgy very cute dog. And I take many, many pictures of the uh, small child and the dog. And they're all just on my phone. They all just live on my phone. Like I, the best I can do is like text them to you. I've never printed one of these photos out because uh, it just feels like a pain in the ass. But Fracture makes it super easy and they're printed on glass. So it's all crisp and looks great. Plus it's cheap. It's just 15 bucks for a five by five print. Every Fracture is handmade and checked for quality by their small team in Gainesville, Florida. It's the thinnest lightest and most elegant way to display your favorite photos. Plus, it's 15% off if you use the coupon code LONGFORM. Uh, So go ahead, print out some of your photos, but don't do it on paper. Do it on glass with Fracture. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. And uh, speaking of glass, let's get back to Ira. 
Let's talk about the, the, the podcasting boom a little bit. You just wrote uh, the forward for this book, comic book called Out on the Wire. Jessica Abel uh, did this comic book sort of about how to make radio stories. I'm paraphrasing, but it basically says, like, uh, I didn't ever expect that there would be this many people producing this stuff, who cared about it, who listened to it. Like, when you started This American Life, I think your analogy is, like, there was enough people making these stories to fit in a minivan, and now there's an <laughs> army. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 it's true too. Like the number of people who who did this. Like at one point I like made a list of the people and I was like is it a is cuz I was like is it a is a compact car? No, it's too many people. It was like it was like seven people. So I was like I don't care. I got a minivan. Okay, minivan. Right, so yeah, yeah, I counted I I name, I knew them all by name cuz there weren't many of us. And then yeah. But here's the thing that I'm 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 interested in is I guess how do you see yourself in this moment? Like we have all these shows a joke that trails these shows is that they all sound like you. I- I'm interested in how you think about yourself in terms of this podcast moment. So it was a minivan 20 years ago, and now there's this army. And the army feels to me, you know, pretty inextricably linked to what you guys have done here, and you in particular. How do you see yourself in it? I mean, how do I, how do I see myself? I mean, I feel excited. <laughs> it feels like, it feels, you know, it feels like, like a whole world of things is happening that, that are things that I personally like, you know, like, like <laughs> I like a lot of these shows. It's exciting. I feel like people are doing such good work and hard, and hard stories to do. And, and I find myself constantly um, feeling humbled by, by, by people on our staff and on other staffs who are doing stories that when I hear it, I, I, I always feel like, there are many, many times where I feel like, oh, I couldn't have done that as well. There's just no way. Like, I could not have done that story as well. Like, you know, like, and I feel like there's so many people who are better writers and performers and interviewers, you know, from Hannah Jaffe Walt to PJ Vogt to Alex Bloomberg to Nancy Updike to, you know, like, there's just like a whole world of people, you know, Jad and Robert and and... You know, just like there's a whole world of people who I feel like, oh, I who do stories where I feel like I wouldn't even be able to do that story. Like I don't have that skill for that one. Do you and, take pride in what's happening with this stuff? I do. Yeah. Though I also feel like there's certain things that I learned from other people and then there's certain things that I invented in myself about like how you do a story for the radio. I don't know. Like sometimes I just feel like, well, these are this is the laws of radio. Like I just happen to like be telling you them, but but the, like they exist independently of whether or not I had discovered them. You know what I mean? Like, well, what are the parts that you feel like you invented? I mean, I feel like the thing that existed as a kind of thing that people did now and then is just this structure that that we talk about in Jessica's comic book, which is just you know you want there to be an anecdote with characters you can relate to and something you connect to emotionally, and you want it to have a plot. Because the forward motion of plot does a bunch of things. You know, one of them is that it makes it hard to turn the thing off because a plot creates the question of like what will happen next. So as soon as you start any plot in motion, no matter how mundane the facts of it are, you're creating kind of a magnet which is asking a question of what what would happen next, what would happen next. So people will keep listening. Right. The example you guys use in the book is that great story about uh I forget who it is on the on the subway platform. Brett. Brett. And, yeah. And there's a guy walking up and whispering in everyone's ear. And then as he gets closer, Brett realizes that he's saying, you can stay. Or you can go. Right. Depending on the person. But even before, like, but even before, like, you hear what the guy is saying, and even before you start to wonder, what is he going to say to Brett? Just the notion of, like, he sees somebody walking up to people whispering something. 
and then walks up to the next person and whispers something and walks up to the next person and whispers something. People don't do anything. It raises a question of like, what's he saying that keeps you listening? But plot can be even, it can be even more mundane. You know, you can be just like a guy, you know, wakes up and sits up in bed and has it very quiet and gets out of bed and walks to the top of the stairs and kind of looks around and it's just very quiet and walks down the stairs and sort of looks around. I mean, nothing is happening in this story. It, can't, it doesn't get duller than this. Like, like, it's the most mundane, All every detail of it is mundane. And yet you wonder what what is about to happen because of the structure of it, right? Like it's sort of like, and, and the fact that the person's moving through space is just the plot of like, goes here, goes there, goes there. And as a question, why is it so quiet? And all you need for narrative suspense is a question. And then all you need for... You know, the forward motion of plot is is any kind of movement at all through through space or through action. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. Like when I discovered like, oh, what plot can do, it changed my whole sense of like what a radio piece should be. And then every now and then you have to come out of the plot to say kind of like some thought about the world, about what happened in the story, about what the story means, about the feelings that the story has. I'd been doing this for a while and somebody pointed out like, oh, that's the structure of a sermon. Like in a sermon, you, like, you tell a little story and you say, here's what the story means. You tell another sermon, you say, here's what it means. And you think about like, that's just like a hugely ancient form. Like Jesus's sermons in the Bible have that structure. And you think about like his mission is like, I want to say something to people and I want it to stick inside them. I want them to pay attention. I want it to stick inside them. Like what's the structure for the talk I'm going to give? And that's the structure. And then and then there's certain sort of just aesthetic choices to the radio show that that I think or just my taste, which is I think that, you know, on the radio, things work better if the people don't sound like they're performing their script, but sound as close to talking as they can. How do you do that? I mean, I had to train myself to do it because because when I started doing this, like I, I talked on the radio like all the other public radio reporters and I read my scripts and it sounded like somebody reading a script. And I had to train myself out of it. And in fact, I did a local show on WBEZ before I did this show, partly just to train myself to perform like a live performer from script. Uh-huh. And and it, like and I really viewed it as like here's my project. One of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to try to learn how to perform live on the air. And in the early days of, of this, for years, parts of the show I would perform live onto the radio. I want to ask you about um, reading from a script really quickly. Mm-hmm. I had this experience. I had to do that for the first time recently, and I did it. And I realized I listened back to it and realized that I was trying to. I was just sounded like you. That does seem to me to be. Uh, a quite prevalent dynamic in sort of scripted radio at this point. It's like people kind of sound like you. Yeah. I don't know what to say to that. I mean, <laughs> like I'm doing it because I actually sound like this, really. You know what I mean? Like I'm <laughs> imitating my own speaking voice. People, and I feel like people would be better off imitating their own speaking voices. Yeah, it's hard though. It's, it's hard. hard to find no, and your it own takes years. Voice. Like it takes years. Like you can see why like, like why performers take years to be good at at performing their own selves or some <laughs> version of themselves. I wondered whether like there was other things going on, whether that was purely technical, like purely radio technical skills, or were you also like uh, getting to know yourself better? Like were you gaining more confidence in your life and that was helping you do that? Or, or is it just like if you do it enough, you start sounding like yourself? Huh, that's a really good question. I mean, I definitely was gaining more confidence, but part of it was just like, getting used to how I sounded when I sounded like this, you know? Like, I remember, like, when I was an NPR reporter and still learning to read on the radio, like, like when I go into the studio, sometimes it just sound terrible and I'd be too tense and, and, 
and there are little tricks that I didn't know. Like, for example, if 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 you're reading something and it's going badly, generally what's happening is that you're tense and, and your voice gets higher. Like you start you start reading up here and really like where we talk is kind of down here. And like literally one of the tricks that you learn if if you know if you think about it or like force yourself to learn it is that is that you can make yourself sound better simply by lowering the pitch of your voice. You can just force your voice to relax by telling it, speak in a lower, like speak down here and not up here, not in this tense place where you are, but like where, where everything's going to sound like a little forced, but like just literally like lower the pitch of your voice down to here and then it'll force you to relax. I'm and just going like, to practice that. Okay. I'm going to talk, uh, talking lower. So wait, so <laughs> you, I think you actually got a little higher there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the connection between you on the radio, you and the rest of your life. And and whether this idea of finding your voice translated to something else that was happening, there was nothing else in the rest of my life for like a really long time. Like like being like making the radio was most of my life. Like through my twenties, that's the thing that that I was organizing everything around, and certainly in the early years of this American life. Is that not the case anymore? No, like like I mean, there there are definitely periods where I'm doing nothing but working, but. But there's something about the choices that I'm making that are different. Like I'm only working this much because I decided to tour in a dance show and, <laughs> you know, helping Mike Birbiglia with his independent movie. And, you know, what I mean, it's like it's so, and, and even those things are like just sort of weird larks that are so different that it feels different somehow. Like and, and I feel like now I have um, friends in a way that I didn't in my 20s, like 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 friends who I actually like stay in contact with. And <laughs> the, you know what I mean? And, and people who I love in a way that I that you know like i definitely had friends when i was in my 20s and 30s but like i just i'm a better friend to people and and i'm married you know like i have somebody who i really love and who's actually like in my life in a way that's like a real thing that's an investment that's as important as the radio show you know or more important and you have a dog to walk every night this dog yeah there's the dog it's interesting to hear you say that because i talked to some people that you work with before this and they all said that I needed to ask you about working all the time. So it's interesting to hear that you feel like I, you don't anymore. Well, no, I don't in the way that I did. In the early days of the radio show, like, it was hard to just get the radio show out each week in a way that was, like, insane. Like, like and it, that where it was just four of us. And you figure, like, in, a, in an episode of radio, like, each person could only do one story, really. You know, in, in our style of show. You know, like, right now we have, like, eight or ten people doing the same thing that four of us did. And um, and it's a huge difference. <laughs> I think that's a huge luxury. <laughs> you know, and also the people doing it now are the best trained radio producers probably in the country. Like, whereas in the first few years, like everybody but me was learning on the job. Right. And even I was learning certain things about it too. But, but you know, like people didn't know how to make these stories. Like, and so I had to be in on, on every edit. You have a pretty long history of hiring people who don't really know how to do this. Up until like eight or ten years ago, when suddenly people knew how to do this, <laughs> right. and I could hire them. So but it wasn't yeah. like a philosophical choice. It was that no, none of those people really existed. No, they didn't exist. I mean, they, like, like there were six or seven people who knew how to do this at the point where I started the show, but they all had gigs. You know, like David Isay was off getting ready to start StoryCorps and doing his work, and you know, you know, Jay Allison was living in the East Coast, and the Kitchen Sisters were on the West Coast. Like, I couldn't hire them; like they were unhireable. Mm -hmm. Like they had no interest, and I didn't have much money. I couldn't pay them very much, and so like I hired, you know, Nancy from Fresh Air, and Elise Spiegel worked for free for the first year. Yeah, wow. Is part of the reason that you don't work on it as much because it because you 
sort of figured it out? Like, is it easier? It must be easier now than it was then. It's much easier now than it was. But also, I'm working with more people who have exactly the same level of skills that I do. Like, I work with people who are at the same level as me. Uh Like, I'm not the best one in the group. I'm, like, exactly the same as a bunch of other people. So other people can handle certain edits and other people can handle, you know, like, there's nothing that that needs my personal attention. How do you uh, stay not bored? It's hard making the show. It's still hard. Like, it's hard. Like, it's it's like, because as you get better at something, if, you know, if you're, if you're somebody who doesn't want to get bored, you just make it harder for yourself. And so, you know, like, if I look at the last three months of shows, you know, there were like the two shows about integration that Hannah Jaffe Walt did with Nicole. And those were like these crazy ambitious shows that basically said that like everything that we all take for granted about integration is wrong and had these incredible narrative stories to kind of sell that. And and there was the Abdi show that Brian had been working on for four months or six months, which is an incredible show. And then we did like the O.J. Simpson thing, which took months to figure out how to tell that story. And in its first drafts, it was completely different. And basically we walked it through many, many changes. And then there was like, and then we did the Katrina show, which we threw together in five weeks, beginning to end, which was a total experiment. We had no idea if we should even do it as a show. And um, and at first I said, like, we shouldn't do it because we just didn't have the manpower to do it. And then like Robin and Zoe went down to to the lower ninth to just see if they could find people who would be interesting and see if they could find stories. And they came back from a reporting trip. They're like, okay. And they seemed like they found it. And, and then we just sort of threw ourselves at that. And it was really hard. It was really, really hard. And, and truthfully, like you're asking like how much do I work? Like there are many, many weeks and months that I'll be working all the time. Like it's, it's true. Because you have created those challenges for yourself. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. But those are the ones that are the most interesting shows. Like the Katrina show really was just like we had no idea what it would be or if it could work and if we could find something that other people weren't doing. And it's really like one of the most beautiful shows we've put out in a while. It's such a beautiful show. How do you personally sort of keep up the energy and the relentlessness around quality when you've been doing the show for as long as you have? I want, I I don't know, in just some basic way, like I want the show to be special. I like making things. I like editing. You know, I like how hard it is. I kind of love the people I work with in this way that, that when I started the show, I didn't understand that that was going to be a part of my life. Like I didn't under, I didn't have, I wasn't sensitive enough to other people and didn't have the imagination to understand like how important it would be to be around people who I like and who, who are so smart and interesting and different from me, you know? Like, I just didn't, I didn't know. I was a much more selfish person. Though I'm pretty selfish now. Like, I've organized my whole right, life around things that I like. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, for my own selfish pleasure. But one of the things I really like is I really love to edit. I love to mix. I love to, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I love, like, all, I love all the parts of it. Yeah. Like, I like doing the budget. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, like, it, there's not a, you know, there are parts that I mind, for sure. Um like listening on Friday mornings, like mixes are done and I have to listen to them and just give notes, you know, and then that's like unbelievably tedious. That's like the kind of like, okay, so move this over four tenths of a second and, you know, start this at this, start the music at this phrase instead of this phrase. And this music a little corny and look for something a little more neutral. And there's like a lot of like, just 
the grunt work of making something. But it is kind of interesting. Like, I don't know, you can kind of zone out with the OCD sort of like pleasure of wanting to make something perfect. Do you feel like you've made perfect shows? I've made perfect enough for me shows. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah, like because it's like it's a piece of broadcast, like and so so perfect means something different than than for like what it means for like a Wes Anderson film or something, you know, like like it's still like a weekly radio show, so like so it's just, we make it as perfect as anyone can make it, given the normal amount of time it takes to make a radio show. Can you try and uh, tell me what that is? Like when it works? No, yeah. What it, what as perfect as you can make it looks like? What that feels like to you? How do you know? <laughs> Um, it has forward momentum from the beginning. It's surprising from the beginning. It has a concept that pulls you in. Like, 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 like a, when I think of like a perfect show, I think of something like one of my favorite shows we've done in the last few years is the one, uh, uh, where it's called 129 cars. And we went on to, um, we went, we found a car dealership and basically the premise of the show is like, they have to sell 129 cars in the month of October. That's it. That's the whole show. That's the, that. That's the premise. And we're just going to see if they can do it, and 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 we're going to meet the people who try to do it. And all the salesmen have different ways that they do it. And there's a bunch of scenes at the beginning that are really charming and evocative and funny and great, where like the goal is set out for the for the hour, and the characters are really interesting and they curse a lot, which I love. I I like cursing. I wish people could see how much I was. I'm smiling right now. That 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 episode is like my favorite in years. Is that true? Oh man, I lo- I loved that one. So, and I feel like it's, and so what makes it a perfect episode is no one's ever done it. You know what I mean? Like we don't know of any other radio show that's ever done this one. It's a completely original idea. Those guys like, and women in the show, the people who the show is about are just great interviewees and really unselfconscious on, on tape, you know? And, uh, and then the staff really brought a game, you know, like Brian killed with his piece and Sean killed with his piece and Robin killed with her piece. Like, and then stuff happened that we could not have predicted in this way that's like the Katrina show we just did. Like stuff happened that we could not have predicted that was surprising to us and that when you hear it on the air, you can hear how surprised we are. And um, you think you think that like these car dealerships are making a fortune and actually we they show us the books and we see like just how badly they do. And especially in the last few days of the month where they really have to move the cars, like there's some cars that they really like, you know, they, they don't make money on and uh, just so they can make their quota. Yeah. Yeah. Part of what I love about that show is it's just, it's just another example of how uh, you, no one really knows what the fuck they're doing. It's true. Yeah. Like these guys who are like, they've been doing this for years. They don't know. They've been doing the car, the car guys, they don't know what they're doing. Okay. So that's. And so I feel like that. So that, that's so a perfect show. It is kind of perfect. Like, and I feel like it's a, or it's as perfect as we could make it. Like, I, I feel like, in a way, the thing you want to aspire to isn't some platonic ideal of perfect, but just like it's as perfect as we could possibly do it. And 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 I feel and and that includes us. Like, we have a system where like, where I feel like a lot of the what makes the show work is that like when we're doing a story like the producer or the reporter who's doing it will like read the story to one person and they'll make changes and then they'll bring in a person who's never heard it and they'll read the revision. They'll bring in another person to read the revision, bring in another person to every revision. And honestly, like we'll be late in the process and we'll go through major changes based on people's notes. And I feel like what it does is that, like there's a there's a rigor to the editing that that the stories get very streamlined in their lines and the feelings pop more. 
in a way that that you can't get any other way than just working something over and over and over again. Like I think I think not enough gets said about how important editing is and how that like that's most things that are great get great through editing. You know, you just have to have faith in that in that process. I'm interested in in when in the process it feels the best to you. Different points, different you points. You have a show like that a, comes out on Friday and it's going to get listened to by millions of people. Is it when the show goes up? Is it when reaction starts coming in? Is it before the show ever goes out? Is it like what, at what point in the process does whatever that endorphin hit that you get from like coming close to perfect or your version of perfect, when does that kick in? I mean, there are two points in it. And one is, is while getting the tape, you can tell if it's special. And so, and so if I'm out on an interview or doing an interview and, and I, like, I know when it's really going great and I get, I get excited because it's like a magical thing coming together that you hope will come together, but, but often doesn't come together. And we kill half of everything we try and we're out in the field, we kill, you know, nine tenths of everything we try, you know, like, like, you know, for, for something to be good enough, you know, you just have to run a lot of stuff and, um, so that's one phase. And then the other phase is there'll just come a point in the editing process where it's clear how, how good the show is going to be, like both with the car show and with the Katrina show and with, and some things came in at the very last minute. Like there's a thing that ends that show where a, a guy had, um, Robin ran into somebody on the street and who's in their twenties who, who was looking for a 13 year old, a friend of his from 10 years ago. He had last seen him when they were 13. He thought he was dead. He thought he was one of the people who died. In Katrina, you know, so many people died. And he's like, I've found everybody but this one friend of mine. And I just want to send out a message to him. And then he then he says this thing on onto um into her microphone. You know, so he's looking for this guy. And then, you know, we were in deadline, but Rob, you know, he's not a reporter, but we're reporters. And so Robin like tracked down the guy. And and so then it was just like this this game of like, could she get them on the phone together? And so she reached the guy. And uh, or she reached the guy's mom and we could not talk the mom for a long time into like getting us through to the guy. Because she's like, well, who are you people? Like, you know, and just was like understandably suspicious. I mean, this is going to give you my 23-year-old son's information. Like, who are you? And like, you know, we just try to do so. It was like a whole like getting her to like understand where we weren't crazy people and weren't creditors or something. Or like, I don't know what she was scared of. And then finally we reached, we reached the guy, but we couldn't reach... The the Terrence, the one who 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 put out the call, like Terrence would not call us back. <laughs> and then finally, it's Friday afternoon, and we're mixing the show, and the show is barely like we're we're hurtling towards a deadline. We go up on the public radio. We'd send out to stations at eight o'clock Eastern time because some stations are running us live. Then on on Chicago, we're on live at eight o'clock Eastern, seven o'clock Chicago time, and so it's like four thirty. And then finally, both guys call Robin back, and she and I were about to like record part of my narration for the show, and we're like barely like stories aren't finished nothing's finished the show isn't mixed like really like a lot has to happen and i was like you can't we got to finish the show like i i wrote a version of the ending without the meeting but you know we just used the first bit of tape and just like okay so that's what we're gonna do and like she's no no no, you gotta let me do this and so i was like oh my god and so i like went off and did something else and she came into the studio and, and got them on the phone with each other for you know half an hour and and we finished the entire show at seven o'clock for an eight o'clock broadcast. And then, but we hadn't put in that new material because it was just like, okay, now everything's done. 
now just give me a minute and I'm going to edit that. And I, and I basically made a new ending to that piece that we put into the eight o'clock feed and got in there, like, you know, remade the show to like fit in the two of them meeting. And I just feel like, I don't know, just like to get into a situation where like just luck can happen, you know what I mean? Where you can make luck happen mm -hmm. and then have it come together. I mean, it's really, it's magical, you know? Like, it's just like, it's, and you just, I don't know, it just feels like, okay, that was, that was really, really hard and the show felt really original and then things happened that we just felt like we were just lucky to witness as people, you know? Like, that's what you want to have happen. Like, that's why you, it's sort of like you want to throw a party and you want it to be a good party where stuff happens that like you didn't even anticipate when you sent out the invitations, you know what I mean? And like all sorts of people show up and they're really interesting people, you know, and like, and like, you know, and, 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 you know, and, and obviously some weeks it doesn't work as well, you know, and, and the weeks where it's bad, you know, you have to work just as hard as a week where it's good. So it's nice when it's good. <laughs> I'm sure. That's an interesting way to think about it as a party. I never thought about it that way. You've talked, uh, I've read you talking before about um, thinking of interviewing as as being a host and people are just going to uh, gonna kind of read you in your dinner party. Well, this was told to me actually, like by by, my, by, by Keith, by my mentor. Like he, he was like, he's like a, an interview is a party that you're throwing. And so the way you act is the way that they'll act. And if you act relaxed, then they'll act relaxed. And if you act like a stiff and you're like a stiff asking like a reporter's questions and I'm a report, I'm an official person. And I'm asking <laughs> you official questions. They'll sit there and give you official answers, you know. But if you act like a person and, and, you know, if you tell them stories, they'll tell you stories back, you know, like and, and you know, and, and it's true. And if you're funny, they'll be funny. If they're capable of that, you know what I mean. Like, <laughs> like, like, you know, they're they're not they don't do interviews for a living. Like, they don't know how to act. Like, they'll just do whatever you do. Well, you do interviews for a living. Yeah, I want. Can we talk about interviewing a little bit? How much longer do you want to go? Uh, I want to go as long as you want. So if you if you need to cut me off, that's fine. I think I have to cut you off right now. I mean, if you want to take a couple of minutes to talk about interviewing and put it in somewhere because I gave you a perfect ending. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Because I'm, I'm editing this interview in my head. That like, is the thing oh, I wanted to ask you about. That's just because because I gave you the ending. The ending is the thing about the party, and that it's just like a perfect ending. You know what I mean? Like, and and that's like it's it's big, but it's it's a big enough thing to end something on. Have you you've been editing this in your head your whole, the whole time? On and off. On yeah, yeah. Haven't you? Well, um, a little bit. I don't know. So you're editing this in your head. What should we take out? Um, I thought it was a little slow at the beginning. Yeah, it was slow at the beginning. There's too much about the business of public radio. <laughs> or I might move that later to like after other stuff that's more interesting. And um, should... There's a digression in the middle of the, like I start on a 15% thing. 15% of the stations will drop you. And then you ask a question that's, uh, that's a digression. And then I come back to that and I would drop the digression and probably drop a lot of detail in that story to get faster to the punchline to the story or just kill that story completely. Were there uh, were there questions where I took you out of something good you were saying? No, at that point I wasn't saying anything good. Not I was there, just kind I just of on mean a road. General. There was one, but I don't remember what it was. <laughs> if I were taking notes, I would, I would know. Do you Do take you... notes while you interview? Yes. Yeah. And, and but, but like more important than taking notes during the interview is when you walk out of the interview to write down right then your favorite moments. Um, and it's nice if you have somebody you're working with who is listening to, because then you can just talk about what are your favorite moments. And and then it'll be just like, you know, your very favorite will be just like three things. And you'll know those are the backbone of the interview of whatever you're going to put on the air. And then sometimes it'll be like seven or eight things if it's a really good interview. 
And when I'm out in the field, like doing a day of reporting, at the end of the day, I force myself, no matter how tired I am, to sit at the computer and just list everything I remember as being good because like you want to get us you want to have a structure for the story in your head from the minute you start working on the story and you want to have a structure for the interview in your head i think from the minute you start conceiving of the interview and then and then that information tells you what actually worked and what the final structure will be and and just you always want to be moving towards that like you have to have a theory of what the piece is before you go out and get the tape do you think really differently because you you sometimes will do these interviews on stage and and uh these kind of longer things. Do you think really differently about those interviews than the ones I the don't, show? and I probably should, because I feel like they, I fail so often at those. And I feel like I'll be interviewing like Judd Apatow or Philip Glass, and um, and they just don't cooperate. You know, they just like <laughs> they just come in with their own agenda. And I feel like Terry Gross knows how to interview famous people, but I don't. And so like I treat it like a normal interview where I've got things that I want to know and a whole agenda and a theory about what will be interesting. And like, and they, I fail at those so often. Has being famous yourself, like becoming famous yourself, changed the dynamic in those interviews? I wish it would, because I would think that, like, am I not famous enough that they have to respect me, but that I'm not famous enough that they have to respect me. They just walk all come over on, me. Come on, come on. No, they just walk all over me. Who's the, who are they? Like, who well, are I'm saying, like, like, the last two I did were, like, Judd Apatow, who I've known now for years, who I really like, and um, and, and Philip Glass, my cousin, you know, who <laughs> asked me, to, and both of them asked me to do the interview as a personal favor, and I was like, all right, sure. And then I, like, prepared interviews and, like, a prepared, like, a professional person. And I feel like, and they both like totally won over the audience. Can I just say like they both killed, <laughs> but they did it by just ignoring my questions and just like telling whatever the fuck they wanted to. And like, you know, yeah, like Judd brought a singer. <laughs> like, like Judd brought like, he totally, he, like, he totally like grandstanded and did his Bill Cosby imitation and, you know, just like totally like walked away with the show, just totally ignored the questions and uh, and charmingly, and Philip too. Like Philip, just totally like just he's like I'm just not going to answer that one. There came a point during the interview where like where like I I, I wanted him to show me what music he had on his on his phone, what yeah. music he was listening to. That's a good question. And he kept taking it out of his pocket, and he would not fucking give it to me. <laughs> and I, and like and later at dinner, I was like I made him show it to me, and it was just like he's so like and you just I don't know it's like the just fam- famous people you just can't. They just, I don't know. I feel like I wasn't prepared for the interv- interviews that I ended up doing. I, I had I treated them like normal interviews. Where I had things that I thought would be the stories that we would go to and the questions I had and just didn't, just didn't. You work. thought they'd be your interviews, but they were their interviews? They, they, they had agendas that were like so different than mine. But what about, what about. Which is why I hate interviewing famous people, which is why like I just can't imagine doing terry gross's job and i really respect that she gets good stuff out of people like it's so hard it's so much harder than the interviews that i do where i'm going to a civilian person who had an experience i'm saying tell me about this thing that was such an important experience for you and then that's a sort of thing that a person wants to tell another person like it's like this is an amazing thing happened to me like yeah i'll tell you and then i can ask them a million questions about it and laugh and think about it with them and it's fun yeah, it's funny to hear you say. You, I, uh, it's funny to hear you say that because I read this interview where you're saying something along those lines, and you don't like talking to famous people because they've done all these interviews before, like you have done all these interviews before, and the whole point is to try and get some, them to say something new, mm-hmm. and uh, and that doesn't seem like fun to you to to do the work of trying to like get them to say something new. Nah, but it, it's funny because I don't even think about it that way really. Like, 
It just seemed like it'd be really fun to talk to you. So I sent you an email to see if I, uh, you'd talk to me. Right. But I didn't have like some, I wasn't like, I've listened to a bunch of Ira Glass interviews and he's dodging this question. And that's what I really want to know. I just wanted to talk to you. Well, you're working a purer game than me. <laughs> you are. You're just going to talk to people because you want to talk to them. Well, sure. When you're playing an inner game, that's much more method than I am. I'm a hack. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I got I to gotta get a top for the show. Like, I'm going to talk to somebody with intent. So you're going to edit this so it ends on, I'm a hack? Because that's not a bad ending either. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. not bad. I think, I bad. think we landed there. Yeah. I feel like it's a little high up. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Does this work? Yeah. How do we sound? We're okay? We sound okay. All right. My voice is a little lower than it was the last time. That's okay. I think people are going to um, uh, know that I'm coming back. They are? Oh, you're going to say I went back? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. This is, I'm embarrassed uh, now about coming back because I listened to the edit this morning. She did the edit. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because the, the, at the end of the thing, we we're talking about like editing and the power of editing and how everything good is edited. And uh, it's good. <laughs> like, well, it's, it's good. It, what was the thing that you felt like you didn't get that, that you're coming back to get? Like, what was the missing thing? I have some, I have some questions for you. And I'm going to ask you them. But I think the missing thing was that, like, I wrote you in that email when I asked to <laughs> come do this. Like, I think I was just a little off, you know? I felt oh. a little off, and I was bummed about it. Well, off, like, like I said things that you didn't follow up on in the way that, like, often haunts me after an interview of, like, oh, they said this, and why didn't I say this? Yeah, a little of that. Like, just not really just not listening great, you know? Not super, I don't know, present, just, like, not like not a conversation. Like, I I think I was just kind of, like waiting for you to talk more and then you know and then i was just like oh shit it's my turn to talk i kind of forgot i was here you know what i mean that's weird it is weird i cast a magical spell you do you really you're uh, you're an enchanting man <laughs> but yeah i'm a little embarrassed because like what we have is fine it's it's good it's, it's not just fine it's good uh and the only person in the world who is going to uh know or feel badly about how i did is me I, I think that that's a I think that that's awesome. I think that I love that it just bothered you and then you came back. I I respect that and I would do the same. I did listen back to it and I have some follow up questions. Okay, you talked in the thing both about your personal life and your professional life, like when you were starting the show, when you were younger. If you asked people you worked with or your friends, they'd be like, "He was a shitty boss and a shitty friend." Wait, I said that, or is you this said a, that. I said that. Yeah. yeah, you said like like I, I you were it, you were tough to work with, and you weren't a great friend to people at that time. Yes, was that a requirement to do something at the best possible level? Like, no, 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 absolutely not. No, of course not. Really? Yeah, no. I just didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> and I was in over my head. And we were a tiny, tiny staff. There were too few of us doing the job. Like, like I think my romantic view of it is like if you're dedicated to greatness. Like you just sacrifice everything for the work. No, that's how that's how dicks justify <laughs> bad behavior. No, no. Like and and just I want to be clear. Like I wasn't an awful boss. I understand. But I wasn't a good boss, and I think I wasn't kind. If I hadn't been so freaked out one hundred percent of the time about like everything we had to do, I would have had the like space inside me to be to be 
just nicer to work with, I think. I mean, I wasn't horrible. <laughs> I wasn't, I, I wasn't I, horrible. It's hard for me to imagine you being horrible. No, but I think like, you know, people would play stuff and I would just be, I, I would just feel like, oh my God, no, like this is going to be so much work. And I would just not hold back mm-hmm. in a way that I think for people who with less experience hearing it from their boss it must not have been very nice. I mean, but but like I was talking to Alex Bloomberg, who, who was with the show in, in, in the early years about he's starting his own business, Gimblet Media, and they're like working all the time and they're starting on these things and it's a huge responsibility. And he's like, but he was they just had a like, big party last week. Yeah, apparently they had a big party. And um, and and he said nothing, um, nothing. He's never worked as hard as in the first few years, the first three years of this American life. And I feel the same. Like none of really? us. Yeah, we never stopped working. Like like it was just too much work to do. And it makes me think about um, something that uh, Conan said in his last show at NBC, where he said something like, "If you work hard and you're kind, things will go okay." Yeah. And and I really think that that's true. And I think there are lots of super creative people who are lovely. And I think that um, there's a really corny idea that you have to be a dick. And 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 one of the things that's been interesting in in when we when we've been getting into like you know we now we've been collaborating with people who do like you know like musical theater. We did yeah. a thing with Lin Manuel Miranda and Michael Mayer, the director who did Spring Awakening and Hedwig and and Lin you know did Hamilton and and. They're super sweet. Like that's why they that's why they work. People like working with them right. because they're super nice people, you know, who just happen to be like the very best at what they do of everyone in the country. <laughs> like like, you know, like Is there something else then that you think that you have in common with these people who do the work that they do at the absolute top level? Yeah, they're out for their own amusement. They're totally in it because the part of them that wanted to make stuff they wanted to make it put on a show when they were 15 that that part is still alive in them and an active part of of the way they make stuff and that's true for you oh my god that's so true for me yeah my relationship my relationship to a lot of things is exactly what it was like when when i was a kid like i fly once a week and my relationship to flying is the same as it was when i was a child <laughs> so just like it just still is just amazing to me like i just really enjoy it <laughs> like and and, and when people complain about like airplanes and the seats are so small and what i just feel like who cares giant <laughs> flying metal box you're on an airplane it's crazy and <laughs> like you look out the window and it's when it takes off it feels like you're in a space movie and <laughs> when it lands it feels like you're really flying it's still i just i enjoy it every time it never gets old like and i really do fly like once a week like somewhere this does the show still feel that way part of it yeah like like you know i don't want to like i don't want to over romanticize it because it's a lot to do, you know, and it's hard some weeks. And some weeks, like, just last week we did the show where I thought, like, oh, this is going to be, like, an easy one to get on the air. And then the opening of the show, it was just hard to write. And I didn't start writing it till late because I thought it was going to be easy to write. And then just the whole show was super crashy and we barely got it on the air in time. And, like, and I say this, like, the the two stories had been done for weeks. Like, the two main stories of the show. This was the show which had the Radio Rookies story mm-hmm. about the, with the girl who was in an abusive relationship. Her boyfriend hit her. She couldn't bring herself to break up with him. And she got back together with him while making the story. And, and, and you know, and just it's this sort of thing where I remember when we were working, we have been working on it for months. I would hear the tape and I'd be like, this is really one of the best radio stories I've ever heard. Like, and, and I felt, had this feeling of like someday we're going to look back on this one as being like, this is one of the most special things we've ever broadcast because you don't hear a person, you know, you hear people in retrospect tell a story like that years later, 
of like, this happened to me when I was a teenager. I was in this awful relationship and I couldn't get out. But she was doing it exactly while it was happening. Right. Like she was puzzling it out. She knew it was it was messed up. And she was thinking it through while it was happening. And everybody in her life was telling her to get out of this relationship and she couldn't bring herself to do it. And so we had that story and we had another really beautiful story that we've been working on for months where like this kid who had never spoken to his dad because they literally speak different languages, we got, we hooked it up so they finally spoke to each other. Like, And so it's obviously like a super winner story. So we had two great stories. And then the opening of the show, which is a story about this tunnel, like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I just thought like, well, this isn't going to be hard. And just didn't do a draft until Wednesday. And just the whole show was crashy. And so it was a really unpleasant Thursday and Friday and giving mix notes really late. And honestly, like the mix on the top, we just threw together, you know, I didn't record the opening of the show until three hours before it went on the air. And just, you know, it's just awful. And all my fault. <laughs> Seriously, it was 100% my fault. It could have been such a lovely, easy week. And I just didn't right early enough in the week and I felt so ashamed I came away from it feeling so ashamed that this show that should have been just a breeze and 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 all of which to say you know is it still like like that for me where it's like oh my god I get to put on a show it totally is and it is at many many points in the process but then there came a point Thursday and Friday where it really was like working in a restaurant's kitchen during a rush you know, and and it's really urgent. You have to finish on time, and it's not going so great. Right. When that happens, or is there a part of you that's like, maybe I don't need to do this anymore? Oh no, just the opposite. No, there's a part of me which is just like, I have to get better. I have to get better at my job. Like I came out of last week feeling like I'm the worst employee on our staff, <laughs> and I don't. We have a story meeting tomorrow, and I'm gonna have to talk to the staff about it. I was like, I think I'm completely structuring my time wrong, and it's fucking everybody up, and I'm so sorry. It's a very uh, courageous confession to make. You don't need to do that. I don't know if it's courageous. I feel like if I don't get in front of it, it's going to be awful. That's kind of how I felt when we sat down. I felt like at least I had to tell you that like, I understand this that. is unnecessary. I mean, and that's something I don't think I would have understood to do in the early years of the show. There's no time to think, actually. Mm. Yeah, it's like, it's like sometimes I try to think about like, well, who am I playing? Like, who's my character as their boss? And I feel like, I feel like I'm not so good being an authority figure. And it's better for me to be their flawed peer. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Just feels more uh, accurate. Yeah, and also like some of them are better at parts of the job than I am. Like, yeah. like you know, like like Robin and Jonathan are better at mixing, and Hannah and Nancy are better writers than I am. And but none Hannah. of them can fire you. No, they can't fire me. That's why I have to tell them I'm, I'm the one who fucked up last week because they can't fire me. So if there's going to be accountability. Is there anyone who can say that to you? Is like there anyone here who can pull oh you aside God, and be like, course. you fucked up last week? Oh, yeah. And in the past, there have been like whole, there have been things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Julie Snyder, for sure. Mm -hmm. And Emily Condon, who's, uh, who's the production manager, for sure. And Nancy Wood, too. Yeah. She's been with the show from the beginning. Can you, do you take that well? Like, can you, can you hear that? It's hard to hear that. But, I mean, I feel like I try to take it like a man. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> I would ask you one more question. I'm going to really let you go. There have been a number of times where people have said, like, you, you think you can do this, but you shouldn't be doing this. Like, you want to... You About wanna, what? You want to you know, you know, you do this part of the job. You want to do this part of the job. You, you can't do as many edits as you want. You can't sit in on this thing. You can't... You just... We're not... You, you, you shouldn't be allowed to. Because like, you don't have the time or because it's cause a you don't problem? Because you don't have the time. Yeah. And it's causing problems. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I did not ask you last time that I, that I have been wondering about is what it was like for you to have serial become serial and not 
have you as the voice of it. Like to be part of this thing that becomes the biggest one of these ever, but you're not front and center. That's a good question. And I would say, in honesty, 90% of me felt great for them. Mm-hmm. And so proud of them, of, of Sarah Koenig and Julie Snyder, who, who invented Serial together. It's both an original idea and then the execution is just could not be better. You know, like it's just an amazing piece of work where they had to really come to so many decisions about just the structure of it, the shape of it, and then the structure of how to tell the story. And it's just like there's just an amazing array of decisions, artistic and editorial, that they had to go through. But like watching it happen, yeah, there was 10% of me where I just felt like, okay, we're over. That's it. I'm over. It's done. Now, like finally, like there's something, there's something in in our world that's bigger than us, and just I uh, just got to get used to that. And uh, and I think increasingly that's that's where it's where things are heading. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like like obviously, like there's now there's like an army of of younger people who are excellent. This American Life has been the most popular podcast for a really long time. And I feel like I can totally envision a day where what we're doing sounds as old-fashioned as, like, you know, the sound of, uh, you know, All Things Considered, which I say with respect. Like, I listen to All Things Considered. <laughs> but, like, the sound of it hasn't changed since the 70s, you know? Yeah. And, and it was an original sound in the 70s, but now that sounds kind of, like, tired. And I can imagine, like, right, like, like what we're doing will sound tired. And that's Okay. Like, let somebody else, like, be number one. That seems great. You're okay with the show sounding tired? I'm not okay with the show sounding tired. And believe me, we do everything we can to constantly try to reinvent the show. You know that, what I mean? Like, the yes. show's very different now than it was even five years ago. Right. And Constant um, experiments. And constant refocusing, like, what are we doing stories about? And how do we think about the show? And, like, the show really exists for us who make it, you know, to sh- shape and reshape. But that said, like... I don't know. It's just a show. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That, I feel like it's fine. Somebody else can do better than we do. It's totally fine. <laughs> like, it's to, like, it's totally fine. Like, like I, I, you know, like, I'm going to make what I like to make because I like to make it. And hopefully, and I think enough people will still be an audience that will can have a show. And like, you know what I mean? Like, there'll be enough people listening that we can still, like, keep our jobs. And if somebody else is more popular, that means that somebody came up with something amazing that people love, and I'm for that. Like, it will be a pleasure to listen to it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm totally fine with that. And it'll hurt, but I'm for it. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm I'm more interested in, in being amused by people's work and seeing people be successful than I am in being number one. Like, I don't, I don't care. Actually, all the thing I care about is that I get to make stuff that I like. That's the number one thing I care about. And as long as I can keep doing that, everybody, I don't care. Other people can do whatever they want. You know. I think that was all. That was the thing I wanted to know. That was it. So, uh, would you, if if you were if you were me, would you would you keep this part? I don't have a sense of the balance of stuff in the earlier part, so I don't know how much of this is going to be repetitive. Because while I feel like to bit, each of your questions, uh, there were good answers, you know, you can just fatigue people by just having too many answers about, like, what are your feelings about getting older? What are your feelings about everything? You know, like, like you can only have so many questions about feelings, I think. And then people are just like, all right, enough with the feelings. 
taking that note. So, so I think it's a judgment call for sure. The thing I'm pausing on is um, you asked me this question last time that later I wondered if I had answered it honestly, which was you asked about um, how other people sound like me. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I remember afterwards thinking like, was I honest about that? And, uh, and, and, and you asked, is that strange? And, and the true answer is I haven't really noticed other people sounding like me. Really? Yeah. Not even on the show? I mean, on our own show, yes, of course. Yeah, but, and I feel like that's a problem with our show. Like, like I feel like it would be a better show if fewer people sounded like me. But a bunch of those people who learned how to do this on your show are now the ones who are making the other shows. Yeah. Like, the uh, other big podcasting company is run by a guy who learned how to do this almost 100% from you. No, I know, and as Alex would be the first to admit, like, we sound so much, so much alike. Yeah, I know, but it's just not something I've thought about. Like, weirdly, like, I just haven't thought about it. Like, like, really? like, yeah, yeah, I haven't. Like, like, I just really haven't. Like, when I'm hearing Alex's stories, I'm not thinking, like, oh, he sounds like me. I'm thinking, that was an amazing move. Yes, that was great to go to interview your uh, wife on okay. that one. Like, that was another great piece of tape. Oh, my God, that was a great piece of writing. Like, that's my experience of it, and so, and so... I'm not. I'm not he- hearing that. People I'm must. Have, people must have mentioned it to you before. It can't be like. I it's never occurred to me that uh, a lot of people on the radio kind of sound like Hourglass. It's come up, yes. But I guess I've just kind of like shrugged it off and haven't thought much about it. <laughs> is the truth about it? Like I really haven't, because I feel like there's nothing I can do about it. I definitely don't feel proud of it. Well, those are kind of the options. It's like pride, maybe like resentment. You know, it's like what, yeah. like you know, someone like bites your style a little bit. You're kind of like, it's not cool. It's so interesting that so many of your questions have been about resentment. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, I'm, and I wonder, is that because you are a particularly resentful person when others are more successful? No, I have, uh, it's because uh, the level of success you have is uh, a bizarre unknown world to me. This is 100% true. And I am fascinated in what it's like to have that level of success and then all of a sudden like a bunch of other people start doing this thing you've been doing and having a bunch of success that I, I'm just curious about it I think I'd handle it badly maybe that's it it's like I don't know how I'd handle it but I'm worried I'd handle it poorly I fear that the real answer to it is that I think I'm so self-centered that that all I care about is what I'm doing <laughs> and so I barely even register other people as competition in that way you know, I mean, there was a period when Radiolab was first coming up yeah. that I was so aware of, like, how much more advanced they were aesthetically and what they're making. And the sound of it sounds so much more modern than what we do because they don't never sound like their own script. They always sound like they're talking. The production values are beautiful and way better than ours. I felt jealous for the first time. I felt like it. But then I was glad I had somebody to feel jealous about. Like, it was yeah. it was lonely not feeling any sense of competition, you know? I don't know. I guess and then there's like there is like a little ten percent part of me which is just like I wonder how long I get to keep my job. There is a little bit. We've had like six endings, but this is the actual ending. Okay, good. Okay. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our sponsors this week, EA Sports FIFA 16. Send an email to podcast at longform.org. The first 10 people will get a free copy of the game. We're also sponsored by MailChimp. 
Fracture, and My Brother's Bomber, the season premiere of the new season of Frontline. It's on Tuesday, September 29th, 10, 9 central. Thanks to all of them for uh, making this possible, but thanks most of all to Ira Glass, uh, who really gave me a tremendous amount of time. That was extremely generous, uh, and I appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.